Well, I love the proclamation that you guys have made. Bless the Lord. So I, I want to encourage you. We're going to just say that again a few times. And I'm just going to say something with regard to our God and Savior. Our God is mighty to save. Bless the Lord. Oh, that's pretty good. He is wonderful and good and gracious. Bless the Lord. He has given me breath and life. Bless the Lord. It's almost negative 30 degrees outside windchill. Bless the Lord. Yeah, there we go. Okay, you can be seated. You know what? I uh, was kind of uh, talking about that. In fact, when I... Um, what I do in the mornings is I've been I've been really desiring to as I get in, in my 70s someday I really want to be habitually happy and I don't mean happy by circumstances I mean joyful in the Lord so that this is a sense of joy is ruling my heart and life and so I've made some practices in my life we've talked about some of the messages and just saying thank you and gratefulness in my journaling one of the things I do is I start out and I kind of begin my journal and, and today. I wrote, you know, it's going to be like negative 10, 12 degrees with wind chills tomorrow, today and tomorrow, like negative 30 to 60, negative 60. And then and what I commonly do is I say, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Well, so you don't have really a choice. So I come in and I, I, I often will go into our ambassador class at the nine o'clock hour and I meet with those who are um, a class of, of, of a number of people that are in their 80 years of age. And, and I was sharing it in a bit of, of you know, maybe you could say complaining. Yeah, and, and, and one of the dear ladies said to me, you know, we're, we're supposed to be thankful. In fact, I heard you one time preach on the fact that we're to be thankful all the time. And she called me on it. So, praise God. We want to call one another because we are called to live thankful lives. So, have at it with one another. Um, complaining in the Word of God is always a sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. We are so grateful to be able to be here in your presence. And I would ask that as we move into this new series of, of messages around this whole imagery of, um, of fighting this good fight and being in this battle of good versus evil. God, you would really just open our hearts today. Speak to us. Give us a deeper understanding. Reveal not just to our head, but into our hearts so that we can live it out in our lives. And bring your light everywhere, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. These things that I'm going to mention here are all somewhat the same. There's something similar, and I want you to think about it. It's pop culture, so if you're not into pop culture, you can kind of excuse yourself out of this one. But if you have a little awareness, you might want to think about this. The Matrix. Familiar with The Matrix? Um, okay. The Lord of the Rings. Okay. Star Wars. Star Trek. Any Trekkies here? Hunger Games. You know, there's something similar to each one of those. Think about it for a second. Each tells the story of a fight for good against evil. There is an enemy. There's a universal struggle. There's actually a cosmic war. In each story, the good seeks to defy the present ruling power of darkness and evil. Think about it. That's one of the reasons I, I, I kind of like some of those stories. 
Because you have this, this fight for that which is good, to defy the present ruling power of darkness and evil. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, which he wrote in a time when he, he was a person who was an atheist who, around the time of World War II, and seeing what was happening and a number of other things, came to a faith in Christ and wrote a book that talked about just mere Christianity. What is it? What's the basics, in a sense? And he speaks about this in this book, about the reality of the cosmic war in which we are involved. Specifically from chapter, the chapter titled The Invasion, which you might want to read sometime. It's a, I think it's a good chapter. One of the things he writes, one of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously, was that it talks so much about a dark power in the universe. Okay, so he's kind of looking at it from an eyes, you know, when he was an atheist. Now he's looking at it with new eyes. He says, what surprised me is it talks so much about a dark power in the universe. A mighty evil spirit who is held to be the power behind death and disease and sin. The difference from dualism, and dualism this philosophical understanding that there's, and, and that's what you get a lot of times in Star Wars and some of these other movies, there's a good and they're bad, they're kind of these equal powers at force against the other. And he says the difference, though, from dualism, with, when you think about Christianity, is that Christianity thinks this dark power was created by God. And was good when he was created. And went wrong. Christianity agrees with dualism that there is a universe at war. So they're at the same, same thing there, philosophically. But Christianity does not think that this is a war between independent powers. It thinks it is a civil war, a rebellion, and that we are living in a part of the universe occupied by the rebel. And that kind of put it, I mean, we're kind of in a Star Wars, kind of a Lord of the Rings. Thing. That's where, where do they get some of this stuff? He writes, enemy-occupied territory. That is what this world is. Christianity is the story of the rightful king who has landed. And you might say landed in disguise. And is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. That's why I called this series The Defiance. I love this idea that, that we are living in this incredible place where there's this good versus bad and we are ruled by this by this evil power and that, that God in disguise has stepped in. And your life, my life, what you do, how you live, is vital to the course of this and to the course of lives. Lewis continues, why is God landing in this enemy-occupied world in disguise and starting a sort of secret society to undermine the devil? Why is he not landing in force Invading it. Is it that he is not strong enough? Well, Christians, well, Christians think he is going to land in force. He will land in force. But we just do not know when. But we can guess why he is delaying. He wants to give us the chance of joining his side freely. I do not suppose you and I would have much, thought much of a Frenchman who waited until the Allies were marching into Germany and then announced, hey, I'm on your side. God will invade. But I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it will be like when he does. And when that happens, it is the end of the world. And when the author walks onto the stage 
the play is over. And what I really want to talk about over this series is this idea that we are still in the play. It's not over yet. And there is a side that you need to show up on. And there is equipment that God has for you to be able to live and to walk into this battle in a way that you can be a part of bringing forth this good. And he will use you. He'll bring it forth no matter what, but you get a choice to be a part of it. And so what we're going to look at in this series is this whole idea of the defiance. We are, in a sense, defying a rebel, an enemy-occupied territory. And here's the main thought this morning. It's just simply this. We are in a big battle against an evil evil enemy. We are in a big battle against an evil enemy overcoming through the personal power of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's simply it. We're going to just break that down. Um, This personal power of the universe, and some scientists may call multiverses, but the idea that this Jesus Christ is the personal power, not a personal power. So the first thing I just want to talk about is that we're in this big battle. And that's what what we find when we come to Ephesians chapter 6. He's been talking a lot in the first part of the whole book about who we are, our identity in Christ, what Jesus has done. It's all theological for the first three chapters. Then he moves into the next few chapters, which are far more practical about how to live. And as he ends his his, his whole letter to these Ephesians, he ends in chapter 6 and he says, I need to remind you this. This is this is a. This is a cosmic war we're in. We're in a real struggle. Don't ever lose sight of this. Ephesians 6, verse 10 and 11. Finally, he says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. That's a great verse to memorize. It's a great verse to keep in mind. Keep yourself balanced. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. We're going to look primarily at just these couple verses. And then next week we're going to talk about the struggle that he talks about in verse 12 and a little bit on. But Paul is really aware. I think one of the reasons at the very end of this, he's, he's, he's very much aware that this is a battle. And he's very really, you know, he's aware of the fact that we become self-consumed. It's really easy for us to get distracted. I, I, I call most of us as believers who are spiritually ADD. And we just don't have the attention to, to stay focused. And so he's saying that get focused again. Don't, don't forget that you're in a battle of cosmic proportions. There's two tendencies. I think it's real easy to lose this sense of what Paul is is telling us here because there's a couple tendencies that I just want to talk about. There's a whole lot more, but just two that I want to talk about. One is that I think it's really easy to be um, to almost be offended by military language. There's a, a distaste in some people's hearts and minds. And then the other side of it, it's really easy in our age and where we live in this world that we live in, especially in the U.S. and especially in Minneapolis and especially in the western suburbs to become complacent. And so this tendency of being offended is something that I'm very much aware of because I grew up out of that age where um, there was, I actually went to a, a Christian college and the Christian college was called the Crusaders. That was their name. And, and a few years or so after I left, they, they were such an uproar of this whole idea of crusade because Christianity was beginning to be known because there was this kind of moral majority and this political move that, that, that might makes right. And if we get in power, we, we will use our power to do this and, and the reality is that we're to be good citizens, but the reality of the, the message of God is he came in disguise, he sacrificed himself, he died on the cross. His power is not about powering over, it's about coming under and serving and sacrificing, giving them yourself to them so that you can change hearts and change lives, right? 
And, and so what, I grew up in the, so they changed the name from Crusaders because it, it gave images of the crusade. And it's that kind of tendency of being offended because you go, you don't want to use military imagery because what was being kind of identified with Christianity is that Christianity is about, you know, if we got the might, we'll make it right. We're going to use our power over you to get what we believe is right to do. And that's not the life of Jesus. And so the Crusaders became the thunder. Now, I just want to share with you this truth. I think we have to be very careful. What I would say to you is we don't discard military imagery that Paul uses. But we be very careful how we employ it. And we very much know what it means. Because, you know, it was very natural for Paul to think of military imagery because he was actually chained to a Roman soldier. He looked right over there and he was very much aware of this Roman power. And he looked at that Roman soldier dressed the way he is with all his armor. And he said, let me just share with you in closing that you are in a battle. And he uses this imagery in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. He uses battle imagery in 1 Timothy chapter 6 because he's talking to his young kind of soldier what to do. 1 Corinthians 10, he talks again about this battle. The weapons we have are not the weapons of the world, but he shares what the weapons are. And so I just want to share with you that the tendency of the distastefulness of military imagery, I think we need to use it because we are really in a battle. But we need to recognize this. And what it says in, in Ephesians chapter 6, the very next verse after he says, we know the devil's schemes, listen to what he says. For our struggle is not against what? Flesh and blood. This is not a battle against another person. You are not opposing a person. You are opposing a person who could be deceived, who is deceived by a power and a force of evil. That's what, it's, that's what he's saying. There is, there is this aspect. You need to be aware of the fact that you're not being deceived. Someone came up to me after the service and said, you know, one of the first things that I need to do is I always look and check myself and go, where are my weaknesses? Where might I be? You see what I'm saying? So there's nothing wrong with this imagery, and I want us to be aware of that as we go into this. The other thing is, is, is not just being offended, but I call complacency. It's real easy when you're not in a, in a place where you have to fight for your faith, in one sense, to become complacent. I had a big decision this morning when I was thinking about the services. In fact, yesterday I was kind of processing it. I had some people and some staff ask me, are we going to do the services on Sunday? Because, you know, the governor made the call, no Monday, et cetera. And I'm usually kind of going, you know, I don't want to make this in a vacuum. So Mike, who's the administrative pastor, and I usually discuss it. And if we feel you need to go further, we go to a couple elders and that kind of thing. Well, this time with Mike, I didn't really go much further when he asked me and we talked about it. I said, no, we're having services. And my litmus test was this. If Green Bay cancels their game today, I'll cancel the services. Not one of us is sitting outside. I mean, if I was sitting outside talking to you, I'd probably be canceling the services. But I mean, think about it. I mean, it's really easy and complacent not to think about what the reality of what we're in here. This is not just a service you put in a few times. This is about your life becoming more like Jesus. And, and these are opportunities for us to hear the Spirit of God and for the Spirit of God to do something in you to change you because you will be going out and you will have an impact around, uh, uh, with people around you. But we can become complacent in the big decision of should we have services. And then I think of what? Green Bay? They're going to sit in the cold. How many, how many would do that? Yeah, there's a few Green Bay <laughs> I can't believe I... I didn't do that first service, but, you know, they're there. Okay. So, we're in a war. 
It's a cosmic struggle. It's, it's good against evil. Put yourself in one of those movies if you want, or one of those stories. Because you are in a story. It's being written right now. Someday we will look back and we'll read about our own actions in this story. I was thinking about this and I thought, you know, we're talking about the fact that we just sometimes don't see it, but real people are suffering, they're being oppressed, they're actually dying spiritually and physically. And as I was thinking about this on, on Monday and processing, getting ready to even think more fully about this message, um, I got a letter from Carrie Borland in our church who um, gave Carrie come to the church and, and she just sent an email and just said, pray for my, my, my brother and his family. They're actually in national news. Carrie asked that we pray because, and then she sent with it a link to the, to an article in the New York Times and the Washington Post. Okay, so this story's hitting big, big time. So let me just read to you a little bit about this article. It says, an artist in Brooklyn working on a design for the World Trade Center Memorial, Bradley Campbell, this is Carrie's brother, chose water as the central element because it symbolized life, rejuvenation, and rebirth. So here he is processing, working for something in the World Trade Center. A decade later, so that was 10 years ago, a decade later and half a world away, the water that aid workers provided to Mr. Campbell, now a pastor, to his family and to the 10 orphans under their care was the difference between life and death. Here's a guy who takes a job who's doing stuff, and now 10 years later as a pastor is working in this area of Sudan in incredibly difficult situations. And it goes on and it says, as many as 22,000 people have found themselves at a camp set up inside the United Nations peacekeeping base just outside the northern city of Malachal. They are bound together by hunger and thirst, fear of the soldiers and rebel fighting outside and the desire to go somewhere safe. So 22,000 are suffering, oppressed, fearing for their life. We're just not talking about physical. South Sudan was plagued into violence, plunged into violence two weeks ago when a political struggle in the capital turned into a bloody ethnic conflict with more than a thousand deaths reported nationwide. And after days of pitch fighting last week with stray billets wounding even some inside the United Nations compound, government forces retook the city. One 27-year-old who was sweltering in heat and overwhelming stench of the waste of human waste and the potential outbreak of cholera and starvation and lack of water, and on top of that, the violence threatening every life, said we need humanitarian help. The continuing threats left Mr. Campbell and his wife Kim with a difficult decision. This is Carrie's brother. This is someone from our congregation's brother. As American citizens, they and their two daughters had the option of taking an evacuation flight, rumored to be coming later in that day. But they did not know if the orphans ages 6 to 17 could come with them. Kim Campbell said that if they could not bring the children, they would stay. And then she said, quote, in the New York Times, when you hear about it, read about it, it's always someone else, somewhere else, she said. These are real lives and real people. It's really easy to become complacent when, when we are from something like that. But when you get connected to something like that, you go, oh. And then I think about it and I go, you know, that's just outright human suffering. But folks, we live, some of you even here, there are, there are people around you who are suffering emotionally, spiritually, and they're being um, 
within their heart, they're, they're living under this oppression that comes because they're in this battle. And we forget it. You may be here in, in the midst of the battle because it's real. And we must never forget this. There's also what I call another thing that's important to realize is that we are in a war against an evil enemy. I think it's, it's so easy to lose track of that. It's so easy to you know, become offended by it. It's so easy to have this tendency to become complacent of the fact that we're really in this battle. But then when you begin to put this element in here, this one makes all the difference in the world for me. There is truly an evil enemy. Ephesians chapter 2, just a little bit before that, Paul is explaining a little bit about their past. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. There was no spiritual life in you. In which you lived when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Does that that sound like enemy occupied territory? I was reading this spring, and this really over the last year, Matthew chapter 6, this, the Lord's Prayer. And I was praying it for a church, and I was thinking, wow, there's so many wonderful things in there that maybe that's something we should do because of some of the truths that are, are locked up in that Lord's Prayer. And I've been praying it for our church. And, and for so many years, I've really understood and, and connected with and resonated with parts of it, like our Father who art in heaven, this fact of this God who is sovereign and great, and he says, call me Daddy. Daddy is kind of the word. Our Daddy who's in heaven. I love that. And then you move to this next part and he goes, um, holy be your name. You are holy. You are set apart. You are so different from us. You, you don't just get angry and, and fly off the handle because you've been offended. You're not this kind of um, alcoholic dad going around trying to get you. are holy. You're so different than anything we know. You're so perfect. And, and I get that. And then I love this part um, where he just talks about his kingdom and his will, that it would be brought here on earth just like in heaven. The fact that we can bring heaven now into earth. Can you imagine that? Where you go, you can touch people's lives through your goodness and kindness and through your peace and your patience and, and those kind of things that, that God begins to develop within your character. That's part of the battle as you become who you are and you dress yourself and outfit yourself, as he says later as we go into this passage, with this armor, you're able to move into places and impact people's lives. You get to bring heaven to earth. Oh, that's cool. I can relate to it. Give us this day our daily bread. That really makes sense. You know, it's, you know, church, be dependent. You're, you're even like eating and you know that you physically die without the food. So also your dependency on God is that way, says Jesus. It's like bread. And he says, you know, here's such an important part that you need to forgive others just as you've been forgiven. That, that's the essential core of the whole message of the gospel. That you have been, you have been forgiven by God for your sin if you receive the gift of His grace through Jesus and you get to touch other people's lives in that way. So live that way. The only person, the only person you imprison by failing to forgive or refusing to forgive is yourself to someone else's injury to you. And I get that. That's cool. And then I read this last part. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What's that about? And I was praying, and it's just, you know, there's, there's a lot to it, but just this is what hit me. Jesus says, now as you live this all out, there is the reality of evil all around you. 
wanting to trip you up. Live with the awareness. There is this evil enemy. You know, so you, you see, Jesus even says that. But then if you look one other time, you look at Acts, and here the writer of Acts, Luke, gives us this story in Acts chapter 10. It's about Peter, and, and Peter says this. He's describing to this new centurion named Cornelius. The church is just beginning to spread. Cornelius is not a Jew. He's a Gentile. And so Peter is beginning to understand, hey, this is for the whole world, this whole message. And he says at one point to him, explaining about Jesus, he goes, you know what has happened. Okay, so that was kind of local news. And then to verse 38 of chapter 10, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. I just say it again. I say it a lot. I pray all the time. God, pour out your spirit with power. I would love for us to see God do things we can't do through our own mind, our own abilities, our own strength. And that only happens when people are like thirsty, hungry, saying, Jesus, we love you. And we ask that you would give us this power that comes through your spirit. That's why I think he uses the word. He doesn't just say, oh, spirit. He says, and power. And how he, now catch, this is the part I want you to catch, though. And he went around doing good. That's the battle he was in. He went around doing good and healing all those who were under, catch this, the power of the devil, a personal evil being. We are in a battle of cosmic proportions. It's a big battle. And we actually face an evil personal being. And according to Jesus and the gospel writers, and according to Paul, he tells us in Ephesians 6, 10 and 11 that, that this evil personal being we call Satan or the devil has an end game. Think about it. He has an end game. And that end game is this, your destruction. That end game is the destruction of your family. That end game is the destruction of your career. That end game of destruction of your, of, your, of your life could be that he makes your career so successful that you have no family life and destroys it. He doesn't care how he does it. He's just going to do it. He's real crafty about it. But his whole end game is this, total annihilation. He would love to see every one of us here suffer. So we're told that uh, John 10.10, 10, Jesus says this. The thief, Satan, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Period. Exclamation point. And Satan is busy seeking to bring this end about for you. And that's why Paul, when he concludes his letter, says, I don't want you to forget this. I want to remember you're in this big battle and in this big battle you face an evil enemy. And that's why he says you need to be finally strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the former of God so that you can take your stand. Catch this against the devil's schemes. You know, sometimes I, I just go. I have to sit back and go, God, what's going on in my life? Where do I need to be aware? Because this is not just a situation with some people. This is about something deeper and more spiritual. There's a force at work here. I, I, can't, let, I can't let Satan get this about people. This is about being the right person with response to this person in love and, and, and in that response, defeating the enemy who wants to destroy this. Does that make sense? He would love to destroy your marriage. He just wants you to bicker and get fighting. He loves to destroy churches. Folks, he is out to destroy us. Because I know that he knows that we're on the verge of God doing some incredible things. In fact, we're seeing them right now. I'm not going to say on the verge. We're seeing incredible things that God's doing. And so I think about the devil's schemes. And, and I'm going to use a, a football analogy 
Anybody who's into sports these days, isn't this a great time of year, the next few months? And, and any um, who isn't, you can just go, oh, this is going to be horrible. Right? Yeah, I mean, it's really cool. I mean, football, basketball, hockey, I mean, they all come up at the same time. Anyway, football is all about figuring out the schemes to beat an opponent. And guess what? It's really clear to me because I have a friend who, you know, as you know, coached the Vikings. If owners don't think you do that well enough, you can actually lose your job over it. Football strategy concerns the deployment of offensive, defensive, and special team players and the execution of plays in football. There are, there are a huge number of positions, formations, strategies, plays, and types of play-calling systems that are utilized. And the goal of the offense, let me give you the goal of the offense. It's to what, you think? Score points. In order to accomplish this goal, coaches and players plan and execute plays based on a variety of factors. They're scheming all the time. The players involved, the opponent's defensive strategy, the amount of time remaining before halftime or the end of the game, and the number of points needed to score to win the game. Strategically, the offense can prolong their possession of the ball to prevent the opponent from scoring. Guess what the defense's role is, what their schemes are. To what? Prevent them from scoring. I could give you a whole list of the same things they do there. Do you know the head coach of a football team spends close to 100 hours a week of 168 hours of a week seeking to understand the schemes of his opponent that next week? I read this article. There are 168 hours in a week and if not for exhaustion, many NFL head coaches would use them all. Baltimore coach John Harbaugh agreed to document his week as the Ravens prep for a bear game. There are always, there's always more you could do, he says, but if you, can't, if you don't sleep, you can't function. Duh. But anyway, um, here's the schedule for just a Monday. Gets up at 5.50. I mean, you can just go through this thing. I just keep going through the whole day. It's all around schemes and designing things, meeting with some people, some press time. And then you go to 11.30, sleep on office couch. Sleeping at the office is about maximizing my time. I can get more done. If I eliminate time, I'd spend driving home. Plus, if I come home too late, chances are I'll wake my wife up. That's for a football game. That's to defeat someone for some temporary little prize. There's an evil enemy. It's just really, do you believe there is an evil enemy? That's nothing. And I look at that and I go, know this, what we're going to be talking about and what this whole thing of, 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 of getting to know Jesus is about is about being able to overcome the schemes of the enemy. Now, I want to put it really on a positive note here because you're kind of, you could go, whoa, this is, whoa, me against Satan and all his demonic, you know, a third of the angels fell. We overcome through the personal power. And I didn't say a personal power, the personal power, Jesus Christ. He is the will above every will. There is a no other will. Ephesians 6, 10 and 11 says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. And I want you to look at these two things. Be strong in the Lord. This is not about yourself, your abilities. This is not about your self-help books. And there may be things that are helpful there. It's not about getting more education. But it's about your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Your impact will always be the result of intimacy. 
It's about really getting serious about saying, I am on his side, and not only on his side, I'm going to know this Jesus. Finally, be strong in the Lord. Get your strength from him in a personal relationship. So that when, when Jesus had actually risen and gone to heaven and ascended to heaven, the disciples were going around. They did a miracle, and they were taken by the authorities. The authorities took them and said, wow, these guys are just fishermen. They're unschooled. They're untrained. But they've been with Jesus. I'm just going to tell you, for you, your overcoming is going to come in this simple truth. It's about the intimacy. It's about wanting to be with Jesus. It means beginning to think about this seriously. It's not about like the Frenchman going, well, I'm on your side. I call that. It's about actually moving into this in a way that will change your life and change your family and change people around you. And so that's the first thing I just want you to be aware of. The second thing is this. Be strong in his mighty power. I just want you to be aware of the fact you don't need to be afraid of Satan and all his power and all his schemes. You need to be aware of it, Paul says, but you don't have to be afraid of it. There's a big difference. Because his power, the power that comes from Jesus is far greater. Ephesians 1, 17 through 21 says this. I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, that he may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Right? Intimacy. And the second thing he continues to go on, I pray that they may have the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know. He talks about the hope. He talks about his inheritance. And then look at this, if you would, at verse um, 19, I think that's what it is. Yeah. And his incomparably great power for us who believe that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. But you know what? Satan has played his biggest weapon. He's, he's, he's sent out his best and it's death and Jesus overcame it. And Jesus, in overcoming that, has made that available to every one of us. But you know what? This is not a power struggle. It's not about God's power against his power so much or your power against uh, Satan's power. It's about your truth. As you are in the truth, it releases power. That's why intimacy, relationship is so important. It's not about head knowledge. It's about heart knowledge. And as you live in this relationship and you, you discern and understand and he gives revelation, he gives you, through you comes power to change lives. Your own life specifically. So I just want to mention this. And you think about this. It's, it's strong in the Lord. It's about relationship. It's about God's power as it comes to your relationship with Jesus. So that you don't need to be afraid of the devil's schemes. Because at one point, Paul even says, you know, you don't know worry about this. In 1 Corinthians, I think it is. He says, um, he, he won't outwit us because we are aware of his schemes. Even God will give you an awareness of the schemes. Don't be afraid because Jesus is more powerful. Don't be afraid because Jesus loves you. He has an end game as well. And his end game will win if you stay in him. It says this, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. He has come that you may have a blessed life. That he has come that you may know his favor. He has come, and if you want to use all these words, abundant, complete, overflowing, plenty, lavish, rich, bountiful, sufficient, generous, exuberant, not lacking in any way kind of life. That's what he wants. And so I just want to, as we move into this series, I just want you to think about two commitments that are really central to this. Because before you hand out equipment, you always got to know whether the person really wants to play the game, right? I really want you to think about, am I on his side by just verbal admission? I'm on his side because I want to come to some services. But I'm really going to be on his side because I'm going to put my full, complete trust in him and I'm going to know him. And not only am I going to know him, as I move into this year, I'm going to follow him with everything in my heart and life. I'm not asking for resolutions. I'm asking for you to really think this through. I'm not asking for a raise of hands. 
I'm asking for us as a church to begin to start thinking this way. It's all out. It's everything. I uh, will close with this because I had this really cool experience that God gave me yesterday. I uh, usually Carol Miller does baptisms specifically with those in our Chinese community. Um, he kind of works closely with a few different groups, and that's one of them. And he was ill yesterday, so Dee asked me on Friday, would you do a baptism on Saturday for the mother of one of our Chinese students? And I said, yeah, I'd be thrilled to do that. And so we had about 10 or 12 here for a baptism service. And um, I just was so blessed by the story. I thought, you've got to hear this. Because it kind of sums up what we're saying. Her name is Amy Chen. She's the mother of Helen, one of the students of our Chinese students who comes to the church here. And I asked her at a certain point to share your testimony. We always people ask people to share your story when they're going to be baptized. And she says, well, she said, hello, everyone. My name is Amy and I'm visiting. I'm visiting from Shanghai, China. That's where she lives. I've come here today to share my testimony and receive my baptism. She thanks a few of the people. And then she goes on and says, I am very grateful for all the fellow Christians I've had the pleasure of meeting and getting to know. But I'd especially like to thank my daughter, Helen, whose transformation from a sad, troubled girl during her darkest hours into a strong, confident woman after converting to Christianity has convinced me to put my faith in Jesus as well. I sincerely believe that God loves all of us and that the power of his love will allow, all, all, allow us to overcome the most difficult challenges in life in order to create joy and happiness for ourselves and those dear to us. In the past... I've never asked for or pursued anything in a spiritual sense. In fact, I did not believe in the existence of any higher power. I have only believed in myself and my own capabilities, thinking that I alone could create a happy life for myself and my family. However, two years ago, when my dear daughter was suffering on her own in a foreign land, and my love and caring for her was not enough to pull her out of the darkness, and I felt completely powerless to help her. Some of you have been there. I could imagine how difficult it was for her because I was once a desperate and hopeless individual lost in darkness. And I am thankful, so thankful that God was able to lead her into the light. And when Helen told me about her spiritual breakthrough, I was very curious and surprised at first. I had no idea what a God was really capable of. But I truly believe this Jesus that Helen told me about could save us from darkness and can give us the strength to overcome anything. So in February of last year, 2013, I came to visit the U.S. for the first time. Helen brought me to this church. And for the first time, I heard the most beautiful, and they usually call it holy music, which I said before, thank you for doing this, because she says, I heard the most beautiful holy music praising and worshiping the Lord. And I was truly happy in that moment. Just music. Even though I couldn't understand the language, I felt like I was at home. When Helen's international advisor read from the verses from the Bible to me in her home, that was the moment I finally let the Lord into my heart. It was as if I could see his face smiling down at me, telling me, come home, my dear child. So when I was asked if I was willing to follow Jesus, I said yes without any doubt in my mind. And I know that I'm a sinner, that Jesus has paid the ultimate penalty for my sins, absolving me from my punishment. Therefore, I love this. Therefore, I am willing to put my life in his hands. 
And from this point on, I will follow him wherever he may lead me and live how he wills me to live. I will strive to spread the word about his selfless love to those around me. Amen.